It was your first time not only to church, but, uh, but yeah, to, to the whole concept of God. Can I, can I encourage you to, be, to, to understand this from the outset? The, the Bible's big idea, all 1,200 pages, can be boiled down to this one sentence. God wants his family back. God wants his family back. The God of the Bible understands the wayward tendencies, tendencies of his kids. So you and I, how we have this bent towards rebellion, towards moving away from him, yet he continues to pursue us and come after us. And please know that today. If you, if you miss everything else, build that connection with your Father God. He so longs to have that connection with you. We continue in our series today, Faith Over Fear. And by way of introduction, let me remind you of something that's very true of you. You love to win. You love to win. We all love to win. As a society, we're addicted to a version of success that essentially means win. We must be winners. We've tried to kind of trick ourselves with this new idea in recent times called participation medals. And we've tried to say that it's enough just that you are in the race uh, that you participated, then you are therefore should feel good about that. However, I'm not sure that's worked for many of us. And I wonder, unless we're at the podium at the end of the race, we actually feel good or not. Winners are what we remember most. Yet here's what I love about the Bible. It doesn't just have stories of winners. It has stories of honest struggles. And it has stories even of spectacular failures. It's all there. It all made its way into God's story for us. But if we take notice, what we'll see in the Bible is not just that, you know, some won, some didn't. There's actually more there for us if we take notice of it. If we look underneath the examples, what we would find is not just that some got it right and some got it wrong. Beneath the surface, there's this special insight if we're looking for it. And here it is. Winning can actually make us vulnerable. Winning can make us vulnerable. It's not always as good as it seems. Does that mean we should try to lose? No, of course not. It just means we should understand the implications of winning. Because what winning does is it puts us on an emotional high. We come out buzzing, thinking we're on top of the world. Yet we would see this lesson on repeat in our Bibles if we took care to, to pay attention to it, that immediately following the finest victories of many saints in the Bible is their greatest failure. Now, why is that? Well, I'm not entirely sure, but maybe it's just that we relax and chill out and forget we're in a war zone. Forget that the battle with the dark side is never ending until we get into eternity. So here's what you need to know. After a great victory, on many occasions, biblically speaking, comes a great trial comes the, the greatest low light after people's greatest highlight, all the way through the Bible. So as we consider this guy today by the name of Elijah, please note this. We're going to see him on his darkest day. So I encourage you to open 1 Kings 19. But you need to know he's had plenty of good ones. In fact, right before this day comes perhaps his highest victory. And this is a guy then, more often than not, that's a winner. You need to know that about Elijah, a guy who regularly walks in the ways of God in a consistent manner. But today, his worst moment. So here's a message I'm calling God's response to Elijah's meltdown. 
God's response to Elijah's meltdown from 1 Kings 19. So as I say, please, in your own time, read back in chapter 18 and you'll find Elijah's massive victory. But here in chapter 19, he's not just in the gutter. He's down the drain. He's out of sight. He feels doomed. But don't miss the backstory. He's just walked out of a sensational win. So for those of you who are winning today, the message is stay vigilant, stay focused. Don't take winning for granted. Eyes on God. For those who feel like they're losing terribly today, you'll relate to Elijah. This is his darkest day. 1 Kings 19, because of what's happened in the previous chapter, Elijah has caused upset to high places. We're talking king and queen. We're picking up the story midstream where royal fury is high tide against Elijah. Verse 2, Queen Jezebel has just laid down a death threat for him that if he's not dead in 24 hours, you know, then everybody's head's on the line kind of thing. She wants him dead and she wants him dead now. But we're most interested today in Elijah's response to that. So let's pick it up from verse 3. 1 Kings 19, and I'm reading from verse 3. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Bathsheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. So we see a quick decline in Elijah's mental health here. Yeah? Upon hearing the news, the palace wants his head. This mighty man of God turns to water. Let's read on. Verse 5, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched down and told him, get up and eat. Elijah looked around and there beside his head was some baked bread on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Then he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied in verse 10, I've zealously served the Lord Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast, the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Sounds like he had his narrative Worked out. Verse 15, the Lord told him, go back to the way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, 
He gets to anoint three people and two kings and a prophet. And then skipping down to verse 18, final verse, yet I will preserve, God says, 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. As you read 1 Kings 19 today, I want you to first note that fear is an appropriate response to danger. It is. It always is. And that's why God gives us this adrenaline shot called fear. You know, you get that. You're in the backyard and the kids are playing cricket. You might be cooking a barbecue or making preparations for an outside dinner. And this scream comes across the backyard. Look out! Look out! You know what that means? There's a ball coming towards your head at high velocity. And what is the emotion that kicks in in that moment? It's fear. You're scared that that ball is going to hit you and cause harm to your physical body. And so you do what? You do this. And rightly so. You jump out of the ray. And healthy and good fear is an appropriate response to danger. So as we come to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 verse 3, he's not going crazy, at least not yet. He's not irrational. He hasn't lost his mind. His response to this threat by the queen is very plausible. See, when someone sitting in a palace puts your life on notice, it's a big deal. This isn't a next door neighbour. This is the queen riled up, 10 out of 10 furious at Elijah. And she won't rest until he is executed. So what we're speaking about here is not just a figure of Elijah's imagination. I mean, that's what we could probably write off a lot of fears to. You know, we're just irrational thinking, but that's not the case here. This is a serious threat that's a head of state, someone with clout. So not only is the source of the threat credible in regards to power, the threat itself is serious in nature. She doesn't say in verse 2, hey, guards, can you bring that guy, what's his name again? Elijah. Yeah, can you, can you bring him in? I'd like to have a chat. I'd like to debate a few things with him. That's not the go here. She wants not a conversation. She wants an execution. The queen doesn't want to see Elijah. She wants to slaughter Elijah. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced you to this quote. When we see irritation and anger, we need to hear fear. When we see irritation and anger... We need to hear fear. How does that relate to Elijah's story? Well, we don't necessarily see him going to irritation and anger here, but we do absolutely see him going to other destructive emotions because he gets spooked, because fear takes a hold of him. What this is saying then is fear often births many other negative emotions in our life. The first emotion we read about here in verse 3 is fear, but once afraid, Elijah spirals out of control. In verse 3, he immediately isolates himself. He leaves his servant behind. First big mistake, avoids company. But that was only the beginning. He's about to go into this meltdown where he becomes suicidal. Now, quick time out. Today is not so much about clinical depression. It's about circumstantial depression. There is a difference. So please hear the difference. We're not saying today, if you just get in touch with 1 Kings 19, the points made today, then you'll be able to go off all medication. That's not what we're saying at all. Yes, I believe the word of God can aid emotional health, but if you are on medication for clinical depression, please hear that today's message isn't necessarily uh, permission 
to go off that medication. Still, today, we are talking about a level of depression that is serious, very serious. Still a place that's challenging, and Elijah can help us all. And more specifically than just considering Elijah's actions, today I want you to see how God responds to his depression and anxiety and fear. And I hope this helps you see God in a new light, like a loving father, a dad that he is. There's four messages we're going to consider from God's actions back towards Elijah at this point. And I think it can speak into our lives in this moment in 2020. God's response to Elijah's meltdown. First point to note, I care about your whole being. God communicates to Elijah. I'm paraphrasing God's activity here into words of comfort for you this morning. This is God's message to you. I care about your whole entire being. Through the activity of God here in this chapter, we see the value he puts on Elijah, not just about his religious adherence, but his entire being. It's a holistic care. In this regard, we see record of God allowing Elijah to have first a good snooze, closely followed by a good feed, closely followed by a good snooze, closely followed by a good feed. And I better stop right now before you take one of those options. Here's the point. Churches do a great disservice to people who are feeling terrible panic and embracing, experiencing fear and depression, anxiety to just say, read your Bible. Sure, reading the Bible matters. I'm a huge proponent of the power of God's word. For many years, I've embraced the one-year Bible daily reading plan. I engage with God's word. I absolutely believe in its power. But I can't emphasise the importance that if we've just got that one go-to mode when someone is depressed to just simply say, read your Bible more, then I think we are doing them a great disservice. Elsewhere, the Bible says that if we bring this hyper-spiritual approach to life, to people's practical needs, in the book of James, it says it like this, if you see someone in genuine need, it's like the middle of winter and they're freezing cold and they need a coat, and your response is, God bless you, brother. Then James says, you know help at all. You know help at all. Do something about their practical needs. And the same applies here. Now, I'd like to give people a benefit of doubt who do that, who mean well and say, I'm just praying for you or just read your Bible. However, please hear this. It's possible to be well-meaning and off-putting. It's possible to be well-meaning and off-putting. Just because my intention was good doesn't mean my action was good. We've got to be far more well-rounded than just having one go-to strategy and just only saying to people, read your Bible more. We are emotional beings. We are physical beings and God responds to Elijah in an appropriate way. God allows him rest and then serves him up a meal. Now, admittedly, if you're watching closely in the reading, you'd notice that God woke him up not once, but twice. But I notice, hear the word of the Lord today. If you're going to dare wake someone up, it better be because you've got a hot meal served. Because this is what God does. Uh, God wakes up Elijah, yes, not once and twice, but to the smell of freshly baked goods. 
And that eases the inclination towards the person being woken up wanting to snarl at you. There's practical wisdom all over the Bible for us to gain. The word of the Lord in all seriousness to some of us today might be this. Are you getting enough rest? Are you getting enough rest? I know we can all cope with different amounts of sleep. Personally, I rarely get eight hours sleep, but that's not the point. Are you getting enough for you? Are you in touch with your own body? It's hard to be emotionally healthy when you're feeling exhausted all the time. And without rest, the capacity for us to process emotions well diminishes. Maybe some of you need a nap after watching this message. <laughs> for another, the wisdom could be, how's your diet going? How's your diet going? God provides Elijah not with leftovers, but freshly baked goods. I wonder how much care we're taking on what we place into our body and whether we're giving our body the right nutrition and understanding the impact of our diet and how that affects our mood and our energy levels and our emotions. We must rush. God's message to Elijah continues, I am the Almighty and yet I am intimate. He comes to Elijah with a gentle whisper. I am the Almighty and yet I am intimate intimate. God takes Elijah on this amazing journey. He puts on a real show. God is uh, far from boring. In verse 11, he calls Elijah out in the mountain face and says, I'm going to show you a thing or two about what I am like. And he appears to Elijah first in a howling wind, so strong that rocks are tumbling around Elijah on this mountain. You can just imagine he's thinking, I've escaped Queen Jezebel only for God to kill me out here with these falling rocks. I mean, He's no doubt rattled by all this experience, but there's no time to relax. Next comes an earthquake after the windstorm. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. Last year, I was at the baseball for the first time, Dodgers Stadium, high up in the grandstand. And then uh, the, the, the grandstand begins to shake and we have an earthquake going on. So Elijah has this to deal with and God rounds off this experience with fire. So windstorm and earthquake and fire. Talk about a rough day at church for Elijah. Elijah deals with all these, but don't miss the detail. I think most stunning of all is what comes next. God says, I'm not in the wind. I'm not in the earthquake. I'm not in the fire. Verse 12, so where was God then? He had to get Elijah's attention and he did that through all these powerful signs. But then he comes in a whisper. Not quite right. A gentle whisper. A gentle whisper. Why a gentle whisper? Well, a gentle whisper, when we whisper gently our our speech is very breathy. Elijah, I still see you. Elijah, I'm still with you. Elijah, you're not forgotten. I love you, Elijah. Maybe breathy to remind Elijah that if not for God, he doesn't have a next breath. Some others have said that God whispered so that Elijah needed to come really, really, really close. 
and give God his full 100% attention. In verse 13, we see Elijah wrapped his face, still unsure of what is about to come, because this whisper comes in the context, remember, of wind, earthquake, fire. I mean, you would be weary too. But he comes out to listen to what God has to say. And in verse 13, God asks Elijah a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, if God knows everything, why a question? What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, God doesn't ask questions for his benefit. He asks them for our benefit. I think he's in a roundabout way saying, Elijah, you're not meant to be here. I hope you realise that. But seemingly God understands the frail state that Elijah's already in. So rather than rebuke him with harsh words, he brings this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? I never told you to come here. This leads perfectly into our next point. Why are you here, Elijah? Because I have given you significant things to do. God says to Elijah, point number three, I'm giving you meaningful tasks. I'm giving you meaningful tasks, which essentially communicates to this man who is suicidal, bottomed out, your life still matters. You are not done yet, Elijah. Get on your bike and get back to the calling that I've given you. As long as there's breath in your lungs, there's stuff for you to do. And God provides Elijah with three crucial tasks we see in verse 15 and 16. Anoint Haziel to be king of Aram. Anoint Jehu to be king of Israel. Anoint Elisha, notice the difference in spelling, Elisha to be your replacement prophet. I wonder how many of us this morning need a fresh sense of God's calling in our lives. As you look across your life, I wonder if you're beginning to think it's all, it's all over. You fear irrelevance. You fear being put on the shelf. You're the other side of 21 and you're just waiting for the end. Everything good you've ever achieved is somewhere way back there in the dust. And you wonder if there's anything worth hanging around for tomorrow. Maybe you've reached a point where you're like Elijah saying, God, you might as well take my life. I'm no use to anyone anymore. Perhaps for others, you're at the other end of the spectrum. You're young. You've never done anything worthwhile and you wonder if you ever will. You doubt you have capacity to achieve anything good for God. Please be reminded, age is no barrier for God. Age has never been a barrier for God. We have scriptural examples of a young boy who offered his lunch to Jesus and Jesus uses it to feed 5,000. We have other scriptural examples of 80-year-old Caleb standing in faith and saying, give me this mountain, Lord. I'm ready to go. Age has never been a barrier for God. He has meaningful things for us all to do. But here's the thing. It's not something that sounds huge. It's about me being sensitive to, sensitive to the voice of the Spirit in this particular season of life. And it's not about how that looks to anyone else. It's about me humbly serving and doing the next step that God puts before me. Let me give you an example of something that sounded good but was not God's will. 
It comes from the life of King David, who wanted to build God a temple. Until that point, the presence of God was just operating in this permanent tent that the people used to carry around from us. And David has it within his heart, a seemingly great idea. Lord, it's... It's enough of this just temporary arrangement that we've got going on with you. I want to build you a permanent structure, a glorious building that, that speaks of the splendour of who you are and points to the fact that your name is so great. So David comes up with this grand plan of building God a temple. Problem. God said no. Not for you to do. And here's the, the really... Weird part about that. God says, great idea, wrong person. Great idea, David. I really like it. I, I know that you're trying to honour my name. But you're not the person to do that. I've chosen your son to do that. That, that role is for the next generation. Make preparations, but it'll be left for your son to carry out that role. Don't pack up your bat and ball, David, and go home. Set up your son to win in that role. My life does not get significance by me following my big dreams. My life gets significance by me walking out the things God has put before me today. I hold loosely to role. I hold tightly to call. God has one final word of encouragement for a fearful, depressed Elijah today. I have not left you alone. I have communal support around you. And I invite the music team to come as we begin closing down this morning's message. We see Elijah felt alone. Verse 14. He felt all by himself. Lord, I'm the only one left serving you. It's easy to begin feeling that way, isn't it? But in the thoughts that swim around in our head, wow, well, they sound different when we verbalise them. How arrogant does it sound when Elijah actually says with his mouth, I am the only one left serving you, God. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? I'm the only one serious, Lord. Is that how Elijah felt? Clearly. Was that the reality of the situation? No. And every depressed person... Under the sound of my voice needs to hear this today. You are not alone. You are not alone. I love the acronym Tammy gave us last week for fear. It was such a good insight. I repeat it this morning. Fear is false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. Yes, we can feel alone, but no, we are not alone. We need to guard our minds against lies. Notice God's words to Elijah in verse 18. Elijah, I know you feel like you're the only faithful one left, but actually that fear is unwarranted. The truth of the matter is I have reserved 7,000 who stand faithful and will not bow down to false idols. Elijah, you are not alone. There's this company of authentic followers of God all around you still. We're in a cultural moment where it's really easy to feel alone. But we are not alone. And now is a better time than ever to work out what it means to be the church of the living God. To be Christ to one another in this season. I invite you 
this afternoon in your own time, whenever you're watching this, to look at the New Testament, see what the church was like when it was in lockdown. And actually, it was at its best. It continued to grow and thrive and worship God, despite the challenges. I know this season feels unusual. Let's be frank, it feels odd. But now's the time to work out what it means to be in community as the people of God. You are not alone. Join me as I close in prayer. God's word to us this morning comes to us through this story of interaction with Elijah. Would you personalise it this morning? God says to us, I care about your whole being. I care about your whole being. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Would you take that word on and be encouraged by it this morning? God says, I am almighty and yet intimate. He comes in a whisper. Listen for his whispers again this day. He says to Elijah, I've given you a meaningful task. And he's given to each of us things to do which matter to his kingdom work. And finally, he said to Elijah, I've not left you alone. There's people all around you that stand faithful to God just like you are. Be encouraged, church. Lift up your head. May the Spirit of God come to you afresh and bring the renewal you need today. In Jesus' name, amen.